You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I am not Kyla Lee. I'm Paul Doroshenko, usually the co-host, but this week I am the host because Kyla's unavailable working on uh, some written arguments for various different matters that are coming up. And uh, she's so pressed for time. She's asked me to host this week and I'm always glad to host. And this week I have as my co-host, Roy Hope. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Good. Hi, everyone. Roy's been on the podcast before, and Roy used to, uh, you know, has been with Acumen for a long, long time, uh, left for a while to do something else, and uh, now is back, and uh, back in the saddle, so to speak. How is it, Roy, being back? Glad to be back. Uh, went to work for the government, came back to private practice, which um, definitely has its perks and benefits. There's, there's some more freedom, I think, probably. Yes, there is. Um, and could actually really help people. I found that working for the government um, was too bureaucratic and it made it hard to uh, actually do anything um, of substance. One of the first things that I found when I started practicing was it was really, really rewarding that I could solve people's problems. And, you know, I was always a problem solver, solving my own problems, but solving other people's problems somehow is is more rewarding and um and somehow you're more capable of doing it because of the objectivity you've got, I think. Yes, uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. I find that yeah. too. Anyway, so you've already got files. You've been back for a couple of weeks and you've already got files. So good for you. Yeah. So we're going to jump right into the topics this week. Kyla has sent us the topics that she wants us to discuss. What I wanted to discuss was uh, liability of, uh, of um, people who are blocking the road with their trucks. But uh, there's uh, other things that are probably more driving law than protest law. So <laughs> she wants us to talk about this uh, interesting court of appeal case. And it does seem pretty interesting. I just started looking at it and I couldn't believe, you know, how much money was involved. Um, but it's uh, it's more interesting because of the legal issue. It is, what is it called? It's Bowie and Bowie? Yes. Bowie and Bowie from the BC Court of Appeal. Tell me a little bit about it because I have not read the whole decision. This one is um, an interesting one. Uh, this is a not an uncommon case, actually. It involves um, a son taking their stepdad's car without permission. Uh, went for a joyride, essentially. Uh, went to go pick up their cousin, his cousin, and they both went on the joyride. Um, at some point, the son let the cousin drive so both these people didn't have permission. They neither the, neither one authorized to drive. None none of them. Or well, licensing wasn't the issue, but they didn't have permission to drive the vehicle. Okay. Yeah. And um, the, the the cousin gets in a car accident and really seriously injures the son, uh, like catastrophic injury such that it's life changing. Um, at trial, uh, the son got about seven million plus in damages. Uh, wow. Yeah, quite a bit. And um, <clears throat> obviously, they felt like they should have had more. The son actually appealed the decision, uh, but they abandoned it in the end. But the, the twist or the main 
part of this case is the um, uh, there was a cross appeal, and that was done by the dad, the stepdad who owned the car, because under the law, uh, you come vicariously liable for somebody else's negligence when they're using the vehicle. And there was two ways that that happens. One is either they are a member of the uh, household of the owner, or there's consent, yeah. implied or express, and then the owner becomes vicariously liable for that person's negligence. Uh, what was being appealed is essentially the owner saying that I shouldn't be vicariously liable because son <clears throat> was never driving. Uh, and they weren't the one who was negligent. It was the cousin. Um, the whole case, or not the whole case, there's several other issues, but the whole case of pertinence or interest to us was um, how the court defined operating because it all hinges on whether the son, or sorry, the um, uh, the cousin was operating the vehicle. <laughs> At trial, the trial judge um, read each term, interpreted the term very broadly to include care and control. And part of the way the judge did that was um, looking at other sections in the Motor Vehicle Act uh, and also incorporating other parallel or related statutes, such as um, the Insurance Vehicle Act, to look at what operate meant. <clears throat> the judge went broader and said that it included care and control, and because the son gave permission to the cousin to drive, he was in care and control of the vehicle, and he let them do that, and therefore was operating, and therefore owner is vicariously liable. So the um, trial judge came to the conclusion that they the guy who's essentially the passenger at that point was in care and control because he let him drive and he's still in the car. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because the, the, uh, the, the section that is vicariously live, uh, vicarious liability, it's operating the vehicle either with the consent of the owner or as a family member of the household. And so then the whole issue was what's operating Uh trial judge said that it includes care and control. Um, court appeal said no, not at all. It has to have some kind of physical control, not functional control. And they said that you have to read because um, it's deemed vicarious liability. It's statutory liability. They said that you have to read it narrowly. You can't be that broad because of the uh, implications of the um, imposing liability uh, from statute. So <clears throat> the, the court appeal says no. There must be some kind of a physical, actual operation of the vehicle for yeah. operating. So what happened in this case was, um, in the end, uh, the dad, the stepdad won, uh, and was not found vicariously liable because can't attach it to son who was passenger. Right. It, it's so many steps away from the dad. Yeah. Like, yeah. The son the car without, without permission and, and then let somebody else operate it. How do you conclude that the son has got care and control at that point? Because um, the the appellate um, lawyers try to argue uh, a well-established principle of agency. Uh, it, it's complex. Like, I didn't really want to get into it, but it's essentially a, they call it a triangular agency, where um, it's a three-party way of um, inferring agency on the third person in the triangle. So you have person A who gives permission to person B, 
person B gives permission to C, and then there's a tripartite relationship of agency there. And it, it, it's a very unique or limited um, area of law. And the most of it, like, I think I see it most frequently in like um, lading cases where it's like uh, shipping uh, things from like point A to point B and the, there's a freight carrier in between and it creates a triangle. Right. Wow. Yeah. Like, so person A orders, sell something or, or order something to person B and then C is the person, this is the freight carrier. And they all have an agency relationship there, right? Because they're all promising yeah. one thing. Like, uh, I will take it from, pick it up from here, and I'll bring it safely and drop it off here, right? So we're talking about car insurance here, where somebody's taking the car without any permission. Yeah, and that's where it, it didn't really stick with the court of appeal. They're they're like, yeah, no, that that's you can't really imply the consent like that, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting one. I'm surprised that so it was ICBC arguing it. ICBC was trying to um, attach liability to the dad, or who was trying to attach liability to the dad here in this circumstance? Well, <clears throat> no doubt um, the the son, because that's where the money is, right? Because yeah. cousin is a kid too. Um, I, I would suspect that they wouldn't have money. So even in yeah. um, at trial and in the appeal. Um, the position of son, which was the original plaintiff, was always pushing that dad is vicariously liable, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I'm glad I don't do that. I'm glad I don't deal with those cases. I was <laughs> looking at the, uh, as soon as I started looking at the Court of Appeal and looking at all the lawyers that they had there, there's like seven lawyers um, appearing. And uh, just imagine the legal bill. I mean, I understand it's a $7 million case, but they're probably into it for uh, three quarters of a million dollars in, in legal fees. And oh, yeah. all of these things is just, you know, in this case, it looks like the court just made the, like the very pragmatic read of it and said, look, you can't, this is too far extended from, from the original uh, insured, but in any event, I'm, uh, I'm I'm glad I don't I'm glad I don't deal with that type of law. I deal with much simpler law these days, which is very often tickets. And we've got a new, interesting, somewhat interesting ticket case that came out. And Kyla sent it to me and said, "This is somewhat interesting." Now, I actually thought it was interesting for a reason that's that's different than others. So this is um, a decision that just came out. It's Regina and back. Sheshi, uh, 2022 BC Supreme Court 152. And uh, the fellow here, in this case, was appealing his own decision in BC Supreme Court, which was uh, uh, courageous and maybe not always the best decision, and uh, ended up in front of uh, Madam Justice Walcom. And um, he is was a truck driver, is a truck driver, and his cell phone landed somewhere in his vehicle. Uh, it had been lost in his vehicle. And he's driving along, he's driving down the highway, and he hears his phone ring, and he realizes, oh, my phone's still in here. And the ringer is telling him where it is. So he reaches down to get it, picks it up, transfers it from one hand to the other hand, and then with the second hand, like I, I'm imagining it, him picking it up with his left hand, probably it was down by the door, hands it to his right hand, then sticks it up in the mount that he's got for it. Now, bad luck for him. There happened to be a police officer beside him, uh, and he's driving 
uh, tractor trailer. I don't know how the police officer could have seen that. Maybe if they're in an SUV, but he swerved in the lane as he's driving. So constellation of things not going great for this fellow. But um, uh, he was charged with the uh, the offense of, of, of using an electronic device. And of course, we've seen all these different cases uh, talking about use that uh, have come out over the years. Um, and he had a, a slightly different angle to it. Um, but number one, I mean, he didn't use it, right? It had just been uh, one that had fallen. And we've seen that in other cases um, where the uh, where it's fallen to the floor, like in the uh, uh, Sanga decision. That was 2020 BC Supreme Court. That's where it fell to the floor. A guy picked it up, but he still had it in his hand uh, when the police officer pulled him over and they came to the conclusion that this was using it. Um, in this case, uh, this fellow conducted his appeal on his own. He conducted his appeal by Zoom using a Farsi interpreter, so quite admirable. But he testified um, about, I mean, the, the testimony that came out at the trial, which was of concern and that he was appealing about, um, was that all of ICBC's material on their website shows use as people holding the phone, people having the phone to their ear, people texting while driving. And that's a pretty interesting defense. And it doesn't really get the consideration in this decision that you can see. I don't think it's a defense that necessarily would work. But we have this defense, and you and I have talked about this in the past, particularly with driving while prohibited cases, where if there's an officially induced error, in other words, somebody from the government has told you that that a certain state of facts or somebody who's in a position of authority has told you a certain state of facts and you relied on that. Sometimes it's a defense. You there? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So like in drive well prohibited cases, for example, um, you know, you get people who go down to ICBC and somebody at ICBC says, no, your license is fine. And so they, you know, drive and then they get arrested for driving while prohibited. And the person at ICBC was either wrong or misinterpreted something. Anyway, I thought this was interesting because he argued that the ICBC brochures, it says, only show talking and texting on cell phones as being prohibited activities. He suggested that he was unaware. Now, this is a different issue. Unawareness that picking up and holding the phone would be considered using it and further argued that his trailer had only moved within its lane. Now, it's unfortunate that he argued this other thing, or at least that the, the appellate judge latched onto this, because I wonder if he's, at, at what point you can rely on, like, government websites for information, and, you know, at, at, at how far in you can go. So here's my example. Um, if you phone the city of Vancouver to find out about a bylaw, um, they will tell you the law is what's on their website. And they do that fairly regularly. And you can spend hours and days digging through bylaws because who knows what bylaw is what bylaw. And half the time, the people there at the, at the city cannot tell you what bylaw you've contravened or potentially could contravene. Um, and you may never figure it out but they actually, at the city, go by their website. 
ICBC is the only insurance company that provides basic insurance. You get your license from ICBC uh, driver services office um, and ICBC's websites mostly uh, describe the law correctly. Is it not reasonable for this guy to look at the website and see the descriptions of use as as the descriptions of use that he can reasonably rely on? I'm asking you, Roy. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think it is reasonable, but it's at the same time, um, the law, this, this area of law is developing. And I, I feel like that first ICBC was probably put that, probably put that up at the outset, like when it first came into effect and all that kind of stuff. And they were covering very general, broad, common uses of foam. And it seemed like that the law has developed into a very narrow, more stricter, interpretation where it's almost like care and control of vehicle where it's deemed that you can use it is sufficient where you don't actually have to use it and i think that nuance can't can't be captured or hasn't been captured in icbc is put up you know right i i think i think the argument is potentially still there and i think the issue comes down to a couple of things the certainty of the information on the website so I think if you found something on the website that clearly showed what you were doing was was okay, you, that would be a great defense. You'd have to bring that in, yeah. right? And you have to be able to demonstrate it. I think the problem that he had here was, A, he probably didn't bring any of that in. He argued that the brochures only show, right? But does he bring any of that stuff in? Um, and he also um, is doing something that's not depicted in the brochures. The brochure is not saying you can pick your phone up and hand it over to your other hand and then stick it up on the window. So he has a bit of a problem there with that. And that's, you know, the judge didn't even consider it in the end. Um, and I think that, you know, is really a pathway to the decision is wrong. And I think it's a appealable on that basis. This decision. Might be. And that's why there is a benefit or why you, people should get lawyers because it's really presenting the case properly, right? And bringing forward the pertinent, relevant, and material evidence and facts. To well, people don't know what evidence they've got to get out. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's part of the, you know, right? That's the benefit of, you know, getting it done right or, you know, uh, putting your best foot forward, right? I mean, the, the, the officially induced error here would be an officially induced error by omission almost. Um, that they don't show his particular circumstances. Um, and maybe he could have found something else. Um, but my problem with this decision is the judge doesn't even really consider the officially induced error in the end. Um, and I think that was necessary in order to make, to come to the conclusion that you're not going to accept him talking about these brochures. Um, and maybe that was a mistake of the trial judge. Um, to, to not have considered it. Maybe that evidence was there in front of them. But I think, you know, in this case, a lawyer probably would not have run that argument. Uh, but I think there is a potential for an argument. And I think it actually is somewhat enhanced in a strange way by running it without counsel. In other words, you know, you, you, you are, uh, I forget, I think you spoke Farsi. So, um, you know, presumably you're, you're Persian. Um, and, um, you come to Canada and you're not accustomed necessarily to hiring lawyers. And most people aren't accustomed to hiring lawyers anyway, right? Like 
You're hoping never have to hire a lawyer in your life if you can avoid it. Um, but, you know, he's doing his best to defend himself, not necessarily knowing that he could have a lawyer uh, and showing up there and explaining his reasoning behind why he felt that this was permissible. Um, I think it was appropriate for the judge to have covered that off in the decision because, um, you know, he expresses that that's his defense, right? Um, yeah, I agree. The, because <laughs> at that point, this goes on and deals with the fact that, yeah, this is holding it in a position which in which it may be used is enough. I think uh, last in, in this circumstance where it's, it's a lay litigant, I think the court actually had an extra duty or should have taken the extra step to assist with the um, plaintiff's or the claimant's, like, you know, uh, application here for an appeal. And because I think it's inferred that that's what the applicant was getting at, saying that it was an officially induced error, but they didn't articulate it like that. Right. And I think, you know, the court probably should have maybe taken that extra step to actually go, I, I, think that's what you're arguing i'm going to address it you know what i mean right and we've seen that in court cases quite often with lay litigants where the court kind of assists or helps with their position right and arguments yeah well they didn't hear but i think probably probably the main reason is that uh uh let's see the the final paragraph there um uh he swerves and in his lane, he claims, while he's doing this, while he's reaching for his phone or while he's putting it back up on his dashboard there. And the judge says, this is the kind of event that the prohibition against electronic devices and the Motor Vehicle Act are intended to curtail. So um, I guess, you know, <laughs> it, it was help, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably easier to focus on the bad driving than it was on the uh, on the potentially... Um, potentially uh, uh, officially induced error argument that he was making. So there's another thing that Kyla sent to us, and I've been following this for a while, and I don't know if you've been following this at all, but this is uh, uh, all arising in the U.S. And, of course, one of the things that we are asked about all the time, the police are always, that people always think that the police in, uh, in Canada are issuing tickets for the sake of generating income. And um, and that there are quotas and such thing. And I've talked to officers and, and retired officers and no, nobody's ever been able to find a quota. Um, but, you know, some revenue does flow back. It all flows back to the government and to the big government pot. Um, and um, and uh, the more money that's coming in, I suppose, the more money they might be willing to put toward traffic enforcement. But we've never found a quota in Canada, but this uh, uh, situation in this one town in Alabama is pretty frightening. So the town is called Brookside, Alabama, uh, and it is a tiny town. Like, I think there's one set of traffic lights or something like that, ridiculously small. And um, the newspaper, uh, I guess, well, it's a website now, uh, AL.com started looking at traffic tickets issued in this town. Um, and uh, they had some changes to the municipal government. There's 1,253 people, 1,253 people in town, and they had brought in um, between 2018 to 2020, they had a 1,478% increase in 
traffic fines. Um, the uh, towing 50 vehicles, 789 in, let me see, uh, that's 1,253 people. Um, so something like, uh, let me see if I can find it still here, $1.2 million in revenue in 2020. Again, traffic fines, 1,253 uh, people. So people started looking into this because they were disputing their traffic fines, uh, and there was a you know a huge lineup outside of the municipal court every month, and they started looking at it, and, and uh, uh, the police chief was called to resign, and he has since resigned. Uh, the mayor has been asked to resign, has not resigned. There's a prosecutor, and potentially the judge uh, are all um, look like they're potentially in cahoots here. Uh, as a result of this, um, let me see. Police stops soared between 2018 and 2020. Fines and forfeitures, seizures of cars during traffic stops, among other things, doubled from 2018 to 2019. In 2020, they came to a skyrocket, came to $610,000, 49% of the town's revenue. 50% of the town's revenue. <laughs> $610,000 brought in. Um, so this all happened after a newspaper started investigating. It's funny, you know, you know, I know all of these lawyers in the U.S., right, um, and um, DUI lawyers, and many of them have mentioned to me that, yeah, it depends on what county you drive through. Like, you'll get pulled over driving five miles an hour, eight miles an hour over the speed limit, um, and there'll be a huge fine, and they'll seize your car because they think that, that you're not going to pay, Um and it's a, a full-on scam, and, and people end up with misdemeanor offenses, like similar to a summary conviction. Anyway, so that is a, an actual example, the town of Brookside, and it's worth looking up. Uh, AL.com are the ones who uh, originally busted the story, uh, but um, let me see if I can find Yeah, so the police chief... Mike Jones resigned, uh, and this uh, all got out, and he just resigned last uh, two weeks ago, January, uh, around January 18th or something like that, and uh, they're now investigating everybody else there. Frightening, though, hey? Like it, it's, it's like Dukes of Hazard or something like that. It's like, a, it's like your, your precise fear of, of driving into the wrong spot. Apparently, the officers were... Uh, we're leaving the town, like the town limits, the city limits, to go patrol on the highway in order to generate more revenue. Um, and there's allegations that they were just making up offenses as they were going along. They would just make up reasons to pull people over. Just complete lie. That, that makes sense. There's only 1,253 people in the town. I mean, there's only so many tickets they could issue. The town. Well, they would have, they they, you know... They, Everybody would be broke, right? Yeah. 153 people and $610,000 worth of revenue. Hmm. So they have to be generated from other people who no, are coming in. So it's it's, uh, like, too. Yeah, it's, you, got a, you got a taillight broken here. Yeah. Smash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I, I, I thought that um, in the States, that if they went outside of their town lines, it, it would be state troopers' jurisdiction, and it wouldn't be theirs anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it might be the same with the RCMP here, where the RCMP have jurisdiction basically everywhere, but they generally stay within those areas that they're policing because that's what they're responsible for. 
I mean, if a, if, a, if we've got all of these uh, integrated road safety unit officers and you can be a, a Delta police officer and pull somebody over in, uh, in Squamish, um, you know, you've got the authority to do that as a, as a traffic officer in the integrated road safety unit. Right. So who knows? I mean, it, you know, each state, of course, has their different laws and each state has, I mean, some states, uh, speeding tickets and things like that leave you with a, a basically a criminal record uh, and uh, for a misdemeanor offense. Um, and so there's lawyers who, who are very, um, uh, <laughs> spend their whole careers just defending traffic tickets, uh, similar to what we do, but we're not facing a, uh, situation where our clients are going to end up with a criminal record for a traffic ticket. But, you know, I remember going to court in Alberta. Well, you, you know, you went to the U of A. Um, but, uh, I don't know if you ever sat in while, uh, traffic tickets were being heard in front of a provincial court judge. But I couldn't believe it that people who didn't show up for their traffic ticket hearing, that they were issuing warrants for them. It's like, yes, what yeah. kind of use of police resources is that? And, I, and I, at the time, I was thinking, man, this is like Alabama. Well, no. Alabama. They, they do that for the, the traffic light tickets, too, in, in, in Alberta. Warrants? Warrants yeah. for your arrest if you don't show up? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I, I, I got one. Um, <laughs> Did you have a warrant for your arrest? No, no, not the warrant, but I got the ticket and it said on the back of there, if I don't show up like to dispute it, if I don't pay or don't show up to dispute it, the warrant will be issued. Oh my gosh. Because when I moved there, I had to rent a car to like move everything there to go to school. And I, I, I didn't know about all the traps and all that. And then I got one and they sent it obviously to my home in BC. And then I was like, oh crap. Yeah. I was arrested for in Alberta um, on a traffic ticket, and uh, I couldn't believe it. I I um, was working. I was like seventeen or eighteen years old, eighteen, I think. And uh, there was a, a police business card on my dash at work, and I thought, okay, well, I have to figure out what this is. I had no idea what it was for, so I drove into the detachment in Sherwood Park, and I was arrested. And it was like. <laughs> I, I, I think it was like a ten dollar ticket or something like that, Crazy. and so I had to I had to be JP released. Then um, I sat in a in a, uh, a holding room for a while, and they were like, "I don't know if we'll be able to get a JP here on the weekend to release you." So, Jesus Christ, it's a fucking speeding ticket or something like it was something stupid. Anyway, um, yeah, the uh, so in some respects. Uh, uh, Alberta is more connected to uh, Alabama, which is ridiculous. And there's lots of ridiculous things going on out there. But it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Now, normally, we have a honking sound, Roy. I don't know how often you've listened to the podcast lately. Some people are just real dedicated listeners. Some people drop in. Um, We accept all listeners to the Driving Law podcast. But... Uh, we have last week had a moratorium on honking, uh, right. because yeah. we're all sick of people honking their horns for no good reason. So the ridiculous driver of the week does not have honking this week. And in fact, it doesn't have a ridiculous driver. It's got a ridiculous, um, passenger. So this is a case that happened in the Nibel. Um, and, uh, what it was was there was a, a a woman who was went out to her car one day and her she's a mechanic 
you've got a Subaru, one of those Subarus, similar to the model you used to have, your old oh, yeah, one, yeah. but yeah, hers yeah, is yeah. silver. Um, she's, as, as a mechanic, she would know that that's a great car, uh, as you do. And um, there was a bunch of mud on the passenger seat, and she's like, Jesus, somebody got in my car all muddy overnight. It's kind of whatever. And she's driving her car around, and then this is three days she's been driving her car. After cleaning up, she's cleaned up the seat. She realizes... Uh, I think there's somebody in the trunk of my car. And so she starts talking to him and you can see the video. It's on TikTok and it's in the news stories too. She starts talking like she hears somebody say like, hello or hey or something like that. And she's like, uh, at first she thinks it's a joke. And then she starts videoing, she starts recording a video and she realizes, yeah, there's somebody in her trunk. And it turns out the guy was in her trunk, Roy. For three days. What? And he's naked. <laughs> naked guy in the trunk. Three days. So, uh, let me see. I'm going to find her, uh, her name. Her name is Bethany Coker. She's a mechanic in an auto repair shop. Um, and uh, she found this naked guy in her trunk. So, she gets out of her car at that point and runs away. Um, and, uh, they call the RCMP and the RCMP come and there's, there's like video of the RCMP extracting the guy naked from the trunk. They sort of hold the trunk lid down to protect his privacy. So I guess he was having some mental health issue, um, and somehow ended up in the trunk of this car. We don't know what happened to his clothes, um, and how he managed to survive there for three days. They took him to the hospital. Uh, and she's actually, I mean, aside from the fact that it was, it was, she was frightened and, and people are saying she should be frightened. She wasn't that frightened. She kept her cool. Um, you know, went and called the police and did the right thing. And other people have said, you know, if I saw something like that, I'd, I'd kill the guy or something. Um, anyway, thank goodness that she, uh, kept her head together. So yeah, it's an so interesting wild. story, interesting story. And one that you can find very quickly by Googling it. So uh, and, and it's already made it. Yeah, I did find it really quickly. <laughs> made it to international news already. And she's uh, she's lovely. And she said that one of the things that's happened as a result of this is that people have seen the news story and seen that, uh, you know, she's a female mechanic and young women have reached out to her uh, interested in becoming mechanics. So that's great. Um, what a interesting opportunity to... Uh, to uh, destigmatize the idea of women being mechanics because uh, women are as competent mechanics as men. One could argue maybe better. Who knows? Uh, but in any event, the um, that was uh, an interesting story. He's not a ridiculous driver. He's a ridiculous passenger. But it's a story <laughs> that, that absolutely belongs on. And he's not in Florida, which was a bit of a surprise. He's in Nanaimo. Um, but it sounds like a Florida story. Anyway... So there you go. Roy, thank you very much for, uh, for uh, joining me here. I really appreciated it. Thank and, you for having me. Yeah. And next week we will have some more exciting topics with Kyla and uh, maybe myself. Who knows? Um, uh, tune in next week for another exciting episode of uh, Driving Law with Kyla Lee. And if you need to track us down, uh, Roy and I are both uh, working in the same office now. We used to work in two different offices for our firm, but we're both downtown now at 604-685-8889. Tune in next week.